Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are the words of Paul's last letter, shortly before he's executed by the Roman Empire. He writes, to, he writes from a dark, dank prison, very different from his first Roman imprisonment, and we'll look at that later. But he writes this letter largely to encourage his protege, Timothy, to carry on the work of the gospel. He knows that the time of his death is imminent. He knows that the church itself and Christianity in general is facing a very dark hour, as he writes. It's a very different kind of letter for Paul because it is his last one. It's a very significant one for us as well. D. Edmund Hebert writes these words about 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy has appropriately been called Paul's swan song. In it, we have the final moving words of that mighty warrior of the cross as he faces death unafraid. It is the dying appeal of the apostle to his young associate, exhorting him to steadfastness in the ministry in the face of appalling difficulties. It is the most personal of the pastoral epistles, the pastoral epistles being 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. It is rich in personal details and gives us a fitting closing picture of the dauntless messenger of Christ, tender and sympathetic, heroic and grand to the very end. It's very well put. We learn a lot about the Apostle Paul through this last letter as well as about Timothy. What I want to do tonight is just give you some background for the setting of this letter. Then we'll look at these first two verses that I read, um, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, and then that will launch us into our study of 2 Timothy over the next several weeks. This is a map of the early Christian church as it was scattered across the Roman Empire. Remember, Paul had already been imprisoned once in Rome. He's actually under house arrest and living with pretty favorable conditions. This is where the book of Acts ends. He was under house arrest. He was allowed freedom to teach the gospel. He was allowed freedom for visitors to come and visit him. Remember, he was even allowed to evangelize the Praetorian Guard as he was chained to them, uh, and that, that guard was rotated over different periods of time. He wrote four epistles during his first imprisonment, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. In fact, Philemon was the owner of Onesimus, and Onesimus was the one uh, that had come as a runaway slave to Rome and had come to Christ through visiting with Paul in that place. So let's look at that. He's in Rome at this first imprisonment. He sends these four letters back, first to Ephesus, and that was a circular letter that would have circulated to all the different churches in Asia Minor. Some of these are the seven churches that John talks about in the book of Revelation. But the letter of Ephesus would have started in Ephesus and circulated to all those different locations. And then Colossians and Philemon would have been carried on to the church at Colossae. That's where Philemon was. He was the owner of Onesimus. Onesimus was actually one of the carriers of the letter, along with Tychicus. And the purpose of Philemon, of course, was to reconcile Philemon with Onesimus and to receive him back now not just as a slave he still was a slave but it's more than that now as a brother in Christ we also know that Philippians was probably written towards the end of this first Roman imprisonment and it was taken to Philippi by Epaphroditus Epaphroditus had come from Philippi he had ministered to Paul during his first Roman imprisonment now he was sending him back with that letter. He also mentions in Philippians that he wants and he hopes to send Timothy soon to Philippi as well. And he talks about the fact that Timothy is like no other for the Apostle Paul. He is his closest associate. He calls him, even in these verses that we read tonight, his child in the faith. He just can't afford to send him right now, so he has to send Epaphroditus back first. These are all, all of this took place again during his first Roman imprisonment, he's quite optimistic, as you read Philippians 1, that he'll be released from this imprisonment, and we believe that he was. 
Now we get to his second imprisonment, the time at which he writes Second Timothy. What we have to do here is use a little sanctified imagination as to what he did after his first Roman imprisonment because the book of Acts ends there. Now we have references in other letters and we can reconstruct what we think Paul did, but we don't have scripture in the same way that we have, for example, in his first three missionary journeys or in his uh, trip to Rome. But we, And there's different reconstructions that can be made out of this, but we believe that he, in all likelihood, would have returned to Ephesus out of his, after his first imprisonment because it's so centrally located, because it was such a key city and a key church in the early church in the first century. It would have served as a basis of operation for him as a headquarters. From Ephesus, he would have gone to Laodicea and to Colossae. Remember, he had not been to either one of these locations yet. And as he wrote Colossians, from his Roman imprisonment, he's hoping and tells them he's hoping to come see them. So I believe he would have done that after he was released. At some point, he makes his way up to Philippi. We do believe he would have sent Timothy there after his release, as he indicated in his letter to the Philippians. Timothy, in all likelihood, would have brought a report back to him at Ephesus, and then Paul himself would have gone up there. We see this is the way that Paul operates through a lot of his journeys. When he can, or when he himself can't go somewhere, he sends somebody else, and then he follows up in that same location. You can imagine, I mean, he's trotting all over the Roman Empire at this point, and there's just not enough of him to go around. So he's trying as best he can to keep in touch with these churches and to encourage them through his own teaching, but he also has a number of gospel workers that are working with him. Timothy would have been one. We know that he writes 1 Timothy from Macedonia. He does tell us that. And it's it's very likely that he could have written that from Philippi. There's other cities within Macedonia that he also administered in and established churches in. At some point, he would have returned to Ephesus and then went down, down to the island of Crete. And there he worked with Titus to evangelize that island. At some point then, he left Titus and went somewhere, we don't know exactly where, but possibly Corinth, and wrote the letter back to Titus on the island of Crete. And again, this follows Paul's pattern. He would go somewhere, he would establish a church or help establish a church, he would move on to some other place, and then he would write a letter back to that place. And he very much uh, believed in what we would call today distance education. He wrote letters to these places and expected them to be instructed by those letters and to follow the commands that were in them as an apostle. Now, he indicates in Titus that he plans to spend the winter in Nicopolis. Uh, There's a certain time of year where it's just not smart to be sailing out on the open seas. And so he would have been, he's planned to spend the winter there. And we believe that at some point after that, that he would have made the journey to Spain. He talked about in the letter to the Romans that he hoped to be, be able to go to Spain at some point. Uh, he ends up in Rome in a way very different than what he first imagined. He was hoping to come to Rome as something other than a prisoner, I'm sure. But he does get there, and he does spend the time in the Roman prison like we talked about. But we believe that he went to Spain probably uh, somewhere in the mid-60s. And as he gets ready to come back to the eastern part of the empire, things have changed dramatically. For one, there's a new emperor, Nero. Well, he's not the new emperor, but he instigates a new wave of persecution in about 64 AD. 64 AD is when the city of Rome burns. Nero subsequently wants to blame the Christians for starting that fire. He was, in fact, very happy that the the city had burned because he wanted to remake it in his own image but he blamed it on the Christians, and that brought a new wave of persecution. Certainly there had been persecution up to that point as people embraced the gospel, and just living within the pagan Gentile empire, they're going to face opposition. But now Christianity itself is an illicit religion within the Roman Empire. So as Paul comes back, at some point he's going to end up being arrested and again uh, being put in Rome This time, not under house arrest, but in the Mamertine prison in Rome. And I don't know if you've heard anything about that. There's actually a church built on top of that prison now, and it was a hole in the ground, literally. Even the sea washed up into this area where the prisoners were kept. 
But there's a church built on top of there. Tradition says that both Paul and Peter were held in this prison before they were executed. And again, this was not a prison where you served a long-term sentence. You went here to be held for a short period of time before you were executed. Well, how do, we, how do we know this? I mean, how do we know the difference in the setting between the prison epistles that we looked at earlier and Second Timothy? Well, you can see it as you compare Scripture. Uh, the first imprisonment, again, is described in Acts 28. The book ends talking about the fact that Paul was openly teaching the kingdom of God and had freedom of many visitors and had co-workers that would come from other cities, minister to him, and then he would send them back to his cities and to their churches to be able to give a report. He writes Second Timothy expecting his execution. And, and at this point, people are deserting him. People that had worked with him a long time were giving up on associating with Paul. In fact, to be associated with Paul at this point was a very dangerous thing. He says at one point in the letter that only Luke is with him. Initially, he was accused by his own people, the Jews, the nation of Israel, for heresy and sedition. Uh, They were very upset that he was taking this message of a crucified Messiah, who indeed had been raised from the dead, but going directly to the Gentiles and preaching that message. And Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ and not keeping the law. And this got him in trouble with a lot of the Jews. In his second imprisonment, though, it's more than just the Jewish nation that's upset with Paul. Certainly they still are. But he's in prison now and arrested as a criminal against the Roman Empire. There were local sporadic persecutions from 60 to 63 AD. And again, this is the period of time that Paul is under house arrest the first time. In the second one, there's a Neronian persecution from 64 to 68, which just really ramped things up and was much, made it much more difficult to be a believer. You've probably heard some of the stories about what Nero did, the way that he treated Christians, even to the extent of using them as human torches at times. He has decent living conditions in a rented house in his first imprisonment, very poor conditions in his second one, a cold, dark prison. If you go there now, there's, there is literally a hole whereby the prisoners were dropped down into the ground. It's been memorialized now, and there's, it's no longer serving as prison. But it's a very difficult place. You know, there's a point in Second Timothy in which he asked for Timothy to bring him a cloak, no doubt because of uh, how cold and dank it was. Many friends visited Paul during his first imprisonment, Many are abandoning him, even people that he has worked with closely. We'll see that as we work through the letter. Many were abandoning him now, and only Luke was with him as he wrote Second Timothy. Now, he is urging Timothy himself to come. He knows. He knows he's going to die, and he wants to see Timothy one more time. He's not sure at this point if he will get to, and a big part of what he's doing in the letter is charging Timothy to carry on this work of the gospel. Many opportunities for Christian witness available in the first imprisonment, both through visitors that come to see him and also the letters that he's writing out to these churches. Opportunities for witness were very limited. As I said earlier, it was dangerous to even be associated with Paul at this point. And for somebody to hunt him down and try to find him in this prison, put their, they put themselves at risk to do that. Finally, he's optimistic about his release and freedom in Philippians 1. Uh, I think, and certainly he says in Philippians 1, for him to live as Christ and to die as gain, he's ready to go be with the Lord. But he also recognizes that God has more time for him to have fruitful ministry. And he, he, he does have fruitful ministry beyond this first house arrest. He lives beyond that time and, and has opportunity to minister but in 2 Timothy 4.6, he recognizes that his hour has come. He's about to be poured out as a drink offering, and he knows that his time is short. All right, so quickly, the author of this letter, of course, is the Apostle Paul. It's the last of the 13 letters that he writes that we have in our New Testament today. The date is about 67 A.D., during his second imprisonment and just before his execution. He writes not to a church, and even not like 1 Timothy. You read 1 Timothy and you expect that it's not only written to Timothy, but it's going to be read to the whole church. This letter, I think, is more, 
more to Timothy directly. There's a lot of personal instruction to Timothy. Certainly it's going to filter its way into the church, but it's, it's very much a very personal, private letter. The occasion then is from Paul's point of view, he longs for Timothy to come see him. He's craving uh, any human contact, and especially friendly contact at this point. But Timothy is his uh, protege. He's the one that he had the most confidence in, and he no doubt was a great encouragement to Paul. So he longs to see him for that reason. And from Paul's point of view too, or Timothy's point of view as well, Paul wants to encourage him. He's, Paul's about to be executed. Timothy's going to be the one that's left to carry on the work of the gospel. And 2 Timothy 2.2 is a key verse here. He wants Timothy to entrust the things that he's heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will in turn be able to teach others also. So there's this passing of gospel truth down through these different generations. So the character of the book is a very personal letter from Paul to Timothy urging him to be faithful to the ministry of the gospel that had been trusted to him. All right, let's look then at an outline of the book overall um, before we look at the first two verses of chapter 1 in particular. As is the case in all of his letters, he starts with this opening greeting. We'll look at that in more detail. First and Second Timothy are very similar in the opening greeting by Paul and different from all the other letters that he writes. And then he gives, Paul, he gives thanksgiving for Timothy's sincere faith. Let's read those verses. Um, we don't know exactly how Timothy came to faith in Christ. We believe it might have happened during his, Paul's first missionary journey because he passes through Timothy's home city at that point. Certainly it's his second journey in which he picks up Timothy, and Timothy is his co-worker from that point on. But we know, too, that Timothy had a very godly heritage, and he talks about that in verses 3 through 5. He says, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that's in you as well. Like so many of his other letters, Paul first uh, expresses prayer for the recipients, for the work that God has done, in this case, in Timothy's life. And he's already trying to encourage him because he's going to use some pretty strong words to exhort him to remain faithful. But here he's, he's thankful to God for the work that God has done in his life, the fact that he knows the Lord Jesus, and the fact that that faith has been passed down from his grandmother through his mother to him. This is the remainder of the letter. The, the body, the biggest part from 1.6 to 4.8 is Paul's exhortation to Timothy in light of his own impending death. He says, and there's a lot in here about suffering, about Paul's suffering, and the fact that Timothy's going to go through the same thing. He's already had a taste of it, even in his association with Paul. But once Paul dies, there's going to be a need for Timothy to be willing to take on the same kind of thing that Paul was. Look down in verse 12 of chapter 1. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. He's talking about his own soul and the fact that he knows Christ. He's absolutely confident as he faces death of what his eternal destiny is going to be. Verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. What, what is he talking about there? Is he talking about financial resources? And when he uses the word treasure, what does he mean? He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about, again, this body of truth. And, and not just the fact that Christ has come as a man and died for our sins and resurrected and ascended to the Father. He's really talking about the whole deposit of Christian truth that we have in our scriptures. Paul was a big advocate himself, teaching the whole counsel of God. Uh, we said in Acts 28, he talked about the kingdom of God. Well, most of that instruction is in the Old Testament. And he's going to talk about the fact that in, uh, Second Timothy, in chapter 3 of Second Timothy, the character of the word of God itself. 
So he, he's very much charging and encouraging Timothy to take what's been entrusted to him and guard it. Uh, don't deviate from it. There's an awful lot in Second Timothy about false teaching and the need to guard against that. Uh, let me read something to you. This is something we've been going in our New Testament survey class. <clears throat> we've been going through Paul's epistles. And the way that we've been doing that is looking at his missionary journeys and matching up where he was as he wrote those different letters. Um, one of the things that's been helpful to me as I've taught through this class is just seeing the common themes in Paul's letters. One of them we've already talked about, the way that he gives thanks to God very early in most of his letters. Galatians is a clear exception. But in most of his letters, he's very thankful for the work that God has already done in the lives of those to whom he writes. Another theme that's very often in his letters, and not just in Paul's letters, but in all the New Testament epistles, is this uh, combating of false teaching. False teaching was something that started very early on in the church, and it was something behind which was Satan himself. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and it's the means by which he gets churches off track is through false teaching. Second Timothy has a lot to say about that. Let me read you a quote about this uh, from Paul Benware in his survey of the New Testament. Paul tells the church that false teaching originates with Satan, though it is proclaimed by men. It is usually very close to the truth. It can affect any area of life or doctrine, and errors will progressively become worse as the end time nears. Have we not seen that ourselves? I mean, we can look and see the kinds of things in Scripture that they were facing in the first century, and now we can look at our own day and we see that things have gotten worse through time. Error has uh, an ability to do that, to grow and multiply and to spread. We can look even to the future as we look at the Scripture and see where we're headed. It's going to get worse than it is right now. Remember, what are conditions like just before Christ returns? You have a worldwide empire led by a false Christ, about as false as you can get. Benware goes on to say, to identify and counter error, the truth must be known and taught. That's a great statement. And that's what Paul does in 2 Timothy. Also, the life of a false teacher will eventually reveal that he's not really of God. 2 Timothy reveals that spiritual warfare is continuous and that the word of God is the major battleground. He talks about being bold by the Spirit to endure suffering. And then he talks about in chapter 2, if you flip over to chapter 2, we're just kind of walking through the letter at a high level tonight. We'll look at these passages in more more detail as we uh, study this letter through the summer. Let's read chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Do you you catch the four generations there? It's Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others. If you think about it, that's the way that the gospel has come to all of us. We all owe Paul a lot as Gentile believers in Christ. He's the first one that took the gospel directly to the Gentiles, He's the one that spread the gospel across the Roman Empire. And through that work in the first century, the gospel eventually came to us through this same method. Somebody faithful shared it with us. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And he goes on to to use three illustrations of how Timothy can do that. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So the first illustration, soldier. It's a military man. military man has a singularity of focus. He doesn't involve himself in the affairs of civilian life. He can't. And the reason he does that is to please the one who's enlisted him. For us as believers... And particularly for those who are involved in gospel ministry, as Timothy is, there has to be that same kind of commitment, that same singularity of focus. It doesn't mean that you don't do anything else in life, but it does require a strong commitment, particularly in the, 
in light of the kind of suffering and opposition that Paul had faced and that Timothy was going to face. The second illustration is verse 5. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. There's a couple of ways that commentators have understood that. One would be, a more natural reading is that if you're going to win a contest of any kind, you have to be fair and square in the way that you win. You can't cheat, in other words. But there's another understanding of this that I think fits more closely. We'll talk about this more when we get to chapter 2. Competing according to the rules means competing and going through the necessary training to be able to compete in the first place. And I think that fits more with the context of what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do. In order to win the prize as an athlete, you have to be able and willing to have the discipline necessary to go through the training and to endure the difficulty that it takes to compete that way. And then finally, the third illustration is a farmer. A hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. We talked about this this morning in our Bible Institute class. It's the fact that farming is hard work. I can't say that from first-hand experience, but I've talked to farmers, and I know that work on a farm is never done. It's never finished. There's always something to do. And in the same way, gospel ministry is that way. And you're working for something that doesn't really come in until the harvest time. Now, if you extend that analogy to the kingdom of God, we work for things, and the reward is way out in the future, uh, both for us as believers and the people to whom we minister. So he's really just trying to encourage him to work hard at the work that he does now and to recognize that he may not necessarily see the reward until Christ comes back. Verse 7, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He's very much teaching Timothy through this letter as he exhorts him to continue on uh, in faithfulness. Finally, in uh, chapter 2, 14, verses 4, 8, he gives him, again, a, a, a lot of instruction about battling false teaching. And the best way to battle that false teaching is to teach the truth. That's going to be the best way for Timothy to stay on course. It's the best way for his hearers to be preserved. You've probably heard the illustration before that the way that they train people to recognize counterfeit money is not to show them all the different ways that you can counterfeit money. It's to show them what a real $100 bill looks like and to study it and to know what that thing is. And that way, no matter what they try to do to duplicate it, you can always see a difference between the real thing and a counterfeit. I think it's a good analogy for what we do in teaching the Word of God. By teaching Scripture, we teach the truth, we raise the level of discernment, and you can detect false teaching in the midst of that. I think that was Paul's method. Now, as we said earlier from Ben Ware's quote, oftentimes it's it's a very subtle thing, and that's why there's a need... For you to be in the scriptures, not just depend on what you get on Sundays and Wednesday nights, or, but to be regularly in the scriptures yourself and to be like the Bereans, to test the things that are taught, to see if these things are so. He says, don't argue over words, and he's made that same admonition in both First Timothy and Titus. He says, continue in the teaching of scripture in light of coming opposition to God's truth. Let's read a couple of passages out of chapter 3. One we've already touched on as far as the way that things will be in the last days. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And I think last days here really is talking about the period uh, from Christ's first coming until the very end. So for us, it's been a long period of time. But if you look at the Bible as a whole and the plan of God as it runs from Genesis to Revelation and where we are in history now, I think you'd have to say we're in the last days, right? I mean, we look all the way back to creation. We see the history of Israel as it runs through the Old Testament. Christ has already come the first time and ministered on the earth. We have the record of his life in the Gospels. We have all the letters that have been written to the church 
We're still living in the church age today, but nothing else has to be fulfilled before the church is raptured. And before then, the book of Revelation can begin to be fulfilled. So really, in one sense, the only thing left for us today is the book of Revelation, the coming of Christ, the great tribulation that precedes that coming of Christ, and then when Christ comes and rules on the earth for a thousand years, the fulfillment of all those other Old Testament prophecies that weren't fulfilled at his first coming. We believe that the coming of Christ is imminent. We believe that nothing else has to be fulfilled before he comes back. So in that sense, we're in the last days. Men, verse 2, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now you could read all that and say, boy, that's pretty nasty. It's a pretty nasty description. And yeah, that's the way the world is out there today. I think he's talking about even within the Christian church. He says in verse 5, in verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. Maybe it's more than uh, just the outside world. Maybe he's talking about the Christian church as well. And again, considering the tone of the whole letter is battling false doctrine within the church, I think it's a fair conclusion. Look then, though, at the end of chapter 3. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And again, think about this as the means by which we're to live in light of these things and the means by which we're to combat false teaching. You, however, verse 14, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them. And again, that would be largely the Apostle Paul in Timothy's case. And that from childhood, so it is more than the Apostle Paul, we've already seen that his mother and grandmother instructed him from the scriptures, that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. When he talks about the sacred writings there, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. New Testament still being written. It's, the letters are still being circulated. It's quite a ways away from it all being under one cover and in one book. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. But then he says in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. That is, Literally, it's God-breathed. It comes from God. The Scripture is inspired by God. Not the men that write the Scriptures. The Scriptures themselves are the very Word of God. Now, that didn't come about as a process of mechanical dictation where God said just completely overtook the mind of the men that wrote the Scriptures and told them what to write. It was a means by which God used those men and their personalities and their background, even their writing style. I mean, you can read Paul's letters and see there's times where, you know, he gets very emotional as he's writing about something. But God superintended that process to the degree that he had written exactly what he wanted written, down to the very word. So we believe in the trustworthiness of what we've received in Scripture. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for four things. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. For what purpose? That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. He's very much impressing upon Timothy the power of the word of God as the sword of the spirit. The power that this book has both to shape his life and to keep him on course as a minister of the gospel and to shape the lives of those to whom he ministers. Let's continue reading in verse 4 just a bit. This is where he's closing the letter. He's really kind of putting the screws on here as far as his charge to Timothy. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, that is, when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. Reprove, rebuke, exhort 
with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. It goes back to chapter 3 and the, the evil days that are yet ahead and the fact that people won't want to hear what the Word of God has to say. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. I can think of a couple of modern-day people that fit that description pretty well. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. He talked about that in chapter 2. Do the work of an evangelist. That is, proclaim Christ. Uh, Don't be afraid. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You can see that Paul is pointing Timothy to that final reward as a means of keeping him motivated to be faithful in his present ministry. The last uh, part of chapter 4, verses 9 through 22, is an epilogue. We'll deal with that in more detail when we get there. He's mentioning a number of people, uh, people that have deserted him and the fact that only Luke is with him. And he's asking for things for Timothy to bring to him. He, He does say in verse 13, When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. And think about this. This is a guy who he knows is near the end of his life. And what is it? how is it he wants to spend his final days studying the Word of God? I think when he talks about the parchments here, he's talking about Old Testament revelation. And he's still digging in and studying, even in the worst kind of conditions. It's a great example to all of us. Okay, so let me ask you, before we look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 1, what are the major themes of this letter? As we've walked through them tonight, and as maybe you've read the letter yourself at different times, what would you say are the main themes here? Say again? To be a good soldier of Christ, to be faithful in ministry. Disciple others. That's the means by which the faith is propagated. What's going to be the opposition? Okay, the culture, the culture will increasingly get worse. False teachers and false teaching, uh, we've already seen. He, he takes note of them in this letter. We see it consistently as a pattern in many of his letters. Anything else? What about 2 Timothy 3.16? I mean, he's talking about the character of the word of God there. It's one of the most important passages that we refer to when we talk about what Scripture is. It is the very Word of God Himself. Don't give in to false teaching. And the best way to do that is to know the true teaching, right? So that's what He's asking us to do. So false teaching, sound doctrine is the best way to battle false teaching. There's a lot of personal exhortation to Timothy. You know, most of his letters again, with the exception of Philemon as well, he's writing to a church, and he's writing not only to provide instruction to the person, but to the church as a whole. First Timothy is a little different in the sense that he's, he's writing to Timothy, Second Timothy, I'm sorry, himself and exhorting him to remain faithful. And of course, those, there are lessons in there for all of us as a result of that, but I think he's really, he's really pointing instruction to uh, ministers of the gospel especially. We talked about the fact that he talked about scripture itself, faithful men. He's not just to entrust the truth to any man, although we do that you know, broadly, but the ones that are to continue to serve in gospel ministry, they have to be tested and tried. They have to be faithful men. He's going to talk about the fact that there's some here that have departed, and you don't always know that when you first start out, right? But you do the best that you can to determine that it's faithful men that you're going to particularly pass along the teaching ministry of the church to. 
God's work of salvation. There's a number of different places where he just summarizes in two or three verses what God has done for us in Christ. I don't think Paul could help himself when he does that. Whenever he writes anything, he reaches a certain point in time where he, he just, in very summary fashion, will summarize the work of the gospel. It's a great thing. So one of the things that we do in our Bible Institute classes is after we work through an outline like this and look at the introduction and kind of walk through an overview of the book and the major themes is just try to say in one sentence, what's the purpose of this book? Why did Paul write this letter to Timothy? And one way that you could say that is Paul writes to Timothy to exhort him to carry on the ministry of the gospel after his death and to request that Timothy come to him at Rome. So just in the time that we have left, just a few minutes, let's look at this greeting to this letter, and this will set the stage for us. You you should have an outline that I handed out uh, as far on the back side is uh, just an outline for these verses. It's real basic. The writer is the Apostle Paul, the reader is Timothy, and the greeter is God. As we said already, in typical fashion, Paul identifies at the very opening of the letter, who he is, uh, that's a nice thing to do, and it's, it's something that's consistently done in Scripture. We typically identify ourselves at the end of the letters that we write. If you get a letter in the mail, you know, you look to the end to see who it's written, or you look at the return address. In this case, Paul tells him up front who it's coming from. And Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Uh, we know that that's not where Paul started out, right? In fact, he started as far on the other end of that as you could. He started out as a persecutor of Jesus Christ and his followers. And Paul was very quick to acknowledge that. He says in his own words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, that he was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. He's talking about against Christians. He says again in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was not fit to be called an apostle. Because he persecuted the church of God. But God himself had other plans for Paul. Christ saved him on the road to Damascus. He radically transformed his life and the direction of his life. And he personally commissioned Paul for this work of gospel ministry, particularly through the Gentiles. An apostle is one, one who is sent. He's really one who's sent on a mission. And in this case... Christ himself sent Paul on the mission of taking the gospel to the Gentiles and spreading it across the Roman Empire. And you might wonder, Paul doesn't always identify himself as an apostle in some of his other letters. And a lot of times it depends on the condition of the church. Uh, If the church has been more receptive to him and his ministry, he doesn't have to use his apostolic authority. And you would think in in 2 Timothy, this is Timothy, this is his protege, Why would he necessarily have to refer to himself as an apostle? Well, I think he wants to remind Timothy he is his friend, his close friend, his associate. He calls him his son. I mean, you can't get any closer than that. But he also has authority, Paul does, and he wants Timothy to feel that as he's commissioning him to carry on the work. You know, the Lord said early on in Paul's life, that he would make him a chosen instrument of his to bear his name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And by this time, as he writes this letter, he's done that. Remember, he was in two years in Caesarea in prison before he spent two years under house arrest in Rome. And as he's in Caesarea, he has opportunity to proclaim the gospel to these Roman officials, to King Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and Felix, He has opportunity to proclaim the gospel to large crowds of Jewish people and to stand trial before even the Sanhedrin. So we can see as he he writes this last letter that he has indeed been faithful to the ministry that's been entrusted to him. In fact, Paul could look back later in his life and see that God had set him apart as an apostle even from his mother's womb. Clearly, this wasn't by Paul's choice, It wasn't by any merit on Paul's part. It was solely by the grace of God and God's choosing him. And Paul knew that better than anyone. As we said, as he writes 2 Timothy, he knows that his death is imminent. He knows that this is a dark hour for Christianity in general. 
with the burning of Rome in 64 AD and the blame being put upon Christians, Christianity had become an illicit religion in the Roman Empire. Many Christians died during this time from 64 to 68 AD. So this is a time at which it's even risky for people to associate with the Apostle Paul. And many of his friends deserted him. We'll see that more, uh, more clearly as we work through the letter. Paul wants to be sure that Timothy will carry on the work of the gospel after he's gone to be with the Lord. The last part of verse 1, he says, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. This, of course, is Paul's message. This is the message of the gospel. It's eternal life. It's reconciliation with God. It's deliverance from spiritual death to eternal life through the salvation that's made available in Jesus Christ. Well, that's Paul, the writer. Let's look now at Timothy, the reader. We've learned a little bit about him already, and we'll learn more about him as we go through the book over the next several weeks. But he's described here in this greeting as Paul's beloved child, not by natural birth, but by the new birth. He came to Christ through Paul's ministry. Paul and Silas had picked up Timothy and Lystra or Lystra on Paul's second missionary journey. He continued to be a trusted co-worker in the gospel with Paul to the very end. So trusted, in fact, that when Paul was still in his first imprisonment and writing the letter to the Philippians, here's what he says in Philippians chapter 2. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Think about all the different people that Paul worked with. Timothy alone was the one he trusted the most. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know, these Philippians knew, of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. We believe, again, that was after Paul's first imprisonment that Timothy indeed made that journey to Philippi and checked on the church there. Okay, that's the, the writer, the reader, and now the greeter is God himself. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This, is, this greeting is identical to the one that Paul writes in 1 Timothy. But both of these stand out in contrast to all of Paul's other letters. What's different about this greeting from what he normally says in his greeting? Mimi, you don't say anything because you knew already. <laughs> I asked this question this morning and she knew the answer. What is different? What does Paul normally say in his opening? He normally says grace and peace. And here he says grace, mercy, and peace. Again, he did it in 1 Timothy as well. He invokes upon Timothy all the blessings that we enjoy as believers today, uh, believers in the gospel of Christ. It's interesting how all three of these concepts of grace, mercy, and peace are interrelated to one another. Grace, of course, is God's unmerited favor towards us. We experience the grace of God in salvation initially, and then he continues to pour out his grace upon us as believers in fact, even unbelievers experience the grace of God, right? We call this common grace to where God doesn't immediately wipe them out. He would be just in doing that, but he exercises patience. He exercises grace so that unbelievers can enjoy the sunshine outside and the springtime and good food and friendships, even as unbelievers. But grace, and the kind of grace that's talked about here is, is the grace by which we're in which we're introduced to when we come to faith in Christ. It's evidenced by his justifying and reconciling us through faith in Christ when we could not merit justification by our own works. If you think about grace as God's unmerited favor towards us, a good way to think about mercy, or let me say it again, a different way. God's grace is his giving us things that we do not deserve. His mercy is his withholding things that we do deserve, right? We deserve eternal damnation. We deserve eternal death 
for our sins. And God exercises mercy towards us by pouring out the wrath that we deserved onto Christ so that we might be reconciled and, uh, and, and be reconciled with God and move from being his enemies to being his friends. Peace, then, is a result of that grace and mercy that God has exercised towards us in Christ. It's first and foremost peace with God. It's a removal of the wrath under which unbelievers exist. And it's, again, we, be, we are moved from his enemies to his friends. That peace with God, that reconciliation with God, in turn, can give us peace in all of life's circumstances. Now, does that mean that all of life's circumstances are rosy and happy? No. There's difficulty. And the Bible talks all about difficulties and how God uses difficulties for our good. You can have peace even in the midst of difficulty. And that's the peace that Paul wishes for here. This threefold greeting then comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, two members of the Trinity. And the fact that it's written the way that it's written indicates that they're fully equal in essence. They're two distinct persons. That's what we teach on the Trinity. It's made up of distinct persons, three in all. But these two are distinct persons who are both equally God. The Father is the author of salvation, the commander-in-chief, if you will, of the Trinity. He's the father of all believers because of our relationship with Christ. We're brothers and sisters with Christ. The Son, Christ himself, is our Redeemer. It's only by his cross work that we can experience the grace and mercy that Paul is wishing for here. And that grace and mercy again results in our peace with God. So Paul stresses both the equality of these two members of the Trinity uh, by putting them under one preposition in the Greek and showing it's a, it's a way, a strong way of affirming the deity of Christ. That's all we'll do for tonight. That will set us up for our study over the next several weeks and we'll just break this letter down into individual paragraphs. I think we'll learn a lot about the Apostle Paul. We'll learn a lot about Timothy. We'll learn a lot about faithfulness. Uh, faithfulness not only in our own lives and living for Christ, but also faithfulness in making disciples of others. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this portion of your word. And we think about the Apostle Paul and all the things that he faced in this life. Uh, the, the shipwrecks, the dangers from robbers, the dangers from rivers, the fact that he was beaten 39 times by the Jews, uh, the fact that he was stoned and left for dead, and other plots that were formed against him to kill him. And yet, he made it. He was faithful to the very end. He, he kept the faith. He finished his fight. And he can look back over his life as he writes this letter and point to the example of his own life and Christ's sustaining work in his life and exhort Timothy to do the same. And Lord, I just pray that as we prepare to study through this letter over the next several months, that you would give us that same desire and that you would grow us through this section of your word. We thank you for Paul's example, one of suffering and hardship, and yet faithfulness in the midst of all that. Pray that, and we recognize too, that, that he was looking at Christ as his example of, of opposition and suffering and yet faithfulness to his mission. Help us, Father, as we, as we live in a culture that's increasingly antagonistic toward Christ and toward Christianity, to be what we ought to be, and to live for Christ until he comes. We pray that in his name. Amen.